Good evening. Welcome back to those on Zoom. Nice to have you with us, to those here in person. Uh, let us continue. We are up to the 13th session in our Modern Jewish History series, really the second session in part two, which is a post-World War I. And tonight's topic will be what's known as the Third Aliyah. Um, and the subtitle of that is the three conflicts or tensions that will really define, which come from the third Aliyah, this decade from 1919 till about 1929, three major conflicts or tensions that will define the, this decade and really all future decades um, in, the lands of, uh, in the land of Israel. The, the story of the return of the Jewish people to the land is really... Uh, a story of waves, as it's discussed. The many different aliyahs, the first aliyah, the second aliyah, the third, the fourth, the fifth, as it's uh, subjectively defined along the way. Really, from a broad perspective, nearly about 500,000 Jews immigrate to Palestine in the 50 years uh, between the 1880s, really beginning in 1881 is where it starts, all the way through the end of the 1930s, leading up to the the decade leading into the, 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 the World War II and the decade leading into the, the founding of the state, it's hard to get exact handle on the numbers, but about 500,000 Jews either come, the population explodes from about 14,000 Jews in 1880. 14,000 Jews are in, uh, in Palestine in 1880. By the time we get to uh, the, the, the 1930s, we are in uh, over half a million Jews. So between natural growth and immigration, of the bulk of that, of course, coming from immigration, uh, we make it in. And it's broken down into different waves. The first wave, which we spent an entire class on from 1881 to 1903, uh, many uh, were actually religious from that first wave, but a great number did not stay. The second Aliyah from 1904 to 1914, which is, of course, the beginning of the First World War, uh, mostly from Russia, who are fleeing all sorts of different hardships. Uh, and then what we'll discuss tonight, which is the third Aliyah, many can, can Condent, or combine it into what's known as the third and the fourth aliyah from 1919 to 1929. So we're going to deal with the decade as a whole, even though if you look it up, most uh, historians like to break this decade up into two separate waves from 1919 to 1923 or 1924. And then there was an economic recession that hits the land of Palestine for a few years. And then again, from 1926 to 1929, they defined that as a second wave. For our purposes, we don't need to get into the, the fine details of the, what, what, one wave, it's two waves, it doesn't matter. We're going to discuss the decade of immigration to the land of Israel from 1919 to 1929, um, which basically marks the two major milestones. 1919, of course, is the end of the First World War, which officially ended in 1918. The Jews begin to come back in 1919. Um, and 1929 is going to be a major world event and a major event in the land. The major world event, of course, is the Great Depression. And in the land of Israel, we, of course, have the pogrom in Hebron, which we will talk about, which is going to be a defining event in the nascent, it's not yet a state, but the land as it's, the, uh, as it's developing. That will conclude because of the pogrom in, in Hebron with the, uh, the white papers of 1930. All of the things that are going to take place in this decade, or the three major ones that we'll address, are the most influential in shaping the ideas and the society that we still see today. So as the Jews begin to come back again, they began already in the 1880s, but what's going to happen in this decade of 1919 to 1929 is really going to shape the next era of Jewish history as a whole, aside from, of course, it's going to shape the actual decade itself. Now, one of the most important things that the Zionist dream needed is, of course, Jews. If you want to set up a Jewish state, what you have to have are Jews who are actually going to live, dwell, create the flavor, the 
uh, the, the numbers that you simply needed. Now, the Arabs were, at this point, a significant majority, and without significant numbers, there was really no way to create and develop a Jewish character in the land. Now, a, a, a certain, I don't know if you want to call it a failure or a naive belief of the Zionists, which has really existed from the very beginning and continues to a degree, is that as soon as it would be possible to come, that when immigration would be allowed, that the Jews would come in mass. That idea that once we got a state, that once we had free travel, that once there was what to be able to, then the Jews would come home in mass has been a dream and the unfortunate reality, and all of us sitting here are part of the problem, we haven't. The Jews have not returned home in mass and every step of the way where one could say, now it will happen. In the early 1900s, you actually couldn't. Immigration was limited. You could not necessarily go. And then immigration eventually opened up. And then they founded the state. And Ben-Gurion was sure when they founded the state in 48, now everyone is going to come. And they were sure in 67, to the miraculous victory of 67, now for sure everyone is going to come. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen in 73. It didn't happen over the last 30 years of an economic boon. Military strength, the land of Israel has everything it can possibly need at this point. And the North American Jewry has not gone. That's an indisputable fact. The numbers simply show there's for sure, there always are people going, but it is a trickle. It is a trickle when you think of the percentages of Jews. Where do the Jews come from and where have they come from throughout the last century? From lands in which they got kicked out of, from lands in which they were oppressed, and lands where there were problems, the Jews fled. Once you're running, where are you going to run to? So you're going to run to the next step in the exile. Once you're running already, so then the Jews came home. This has been our story over the last century, starting with... Uh, the end of World War with Russia when they left Russia in the 1880s and then left Russia again in the 1890s and then the early 90s. Russia was always a problem for the Jews and when they left, they came to, uh, they came to the land of Palestine. After World War II, the Jews came to Palestine. Those who survived, there was a mass immigration to the land of Palestine. Then Iran, Iraq, they came after the state was founded and all of the Arab lands kicked the Jews out. They came in mass to the land of Israel. And we see it today, places like France, wherever there's problems, the Jews run to Israel. Where things are good and safe and stable, we're all here. We're all here. And uh, that's sort of been what's gone on. The 1920s was an exception uh, to this rule. About 160,000 Jews arrived during the decade from various places, most of which from Eastern Europe. The reality is many did not stay. This is a reality of the first Aliyah, the second Aliyah, the third Aliyah. A great percentage, almost 25% is estimated, who came and could not make it. And it doesn't need to be stated why. We all know how difficult life was in Palestine during this early part of the 1900s. It was not easy to live. It was not easy to make a living. It was, everything was difficult. And, and many simply did not stay. And what's interesting, you, see, you listen to Rabbi Beryl Wine when he tells, like, why, and why did the Jews leave? So the Jews are Jews. Some left because they said it wasn't religious enough. And some left because it wasn't secular enough. It wasn't socialist enough. It was, whatever. You know, and he, in his inimitable way, described a Jew going to Palestine, whether they be secular or religious, has a vision of a dream. The return, when someone moves to England, they're not following a dream of a utopia. Whatever their personal utopia may be, 
I'm moving to England. I, well, I, for whatever reason, I'm moving to the States. I'm moving to Canada. I mean, for me, it was a dream. But for, but for most people, when you move to a new country, whatever the reason is you're moving, you're moving. But when you go to Palestine, whether you were a secular Zionist in the 1920s or you were a religious Jew, this was the dream. It was a dreamland. And when you have dreams and the reality does not match the dream, so then you get crushed. So if you don't come with a dream, I'm moving to a country, whatever reasons people move for, I need to move, a job, whatever, a spouse. So you move and you make, you make a life for yourself. But when you move for idealistic reasons, so then you normally find that your idealism doesn't match the reality and then it's a great disappointment. This is well known, even until today, when people make Aliyah and they pick up and they move, the first piece of advice anyone who's living in Israel now will make sure that he or she who's moving to Israel knows is, you know, it's not perfect here. You know, there are a lot of Jews who live here and they're, you know, a contentious group sometimes and there's this problem and that problem. If you're going to find utopia, you're going to be disappointed. All that to say, the 1920s did have a large influx and there were a lot of people who came and a lot of people who left. Again, if estimates are correct, nearly 25% is a very, very large number that did not uh, actually make it. Historically speaking, this wave is kicked off on December 19th, 1919, when the... The ship, the Russellin, arrives in the Jaffa port, carrying over 600 new immigrants and people returning after being stranded in Europe during the war. Many people could not get to Palestine during the war, so they were stuck. And the first ship, that's why it's just a historical note, the first ship to arrive carrying a large load of both immigrants, those moving and those who were stranded coming back home, is this ship, the Ruslan. A uh, prominent member aboard was Menachem Musishkin, uh, who, we'll, who we'll speak about a little bit later as well. He is part of this, this wave of people coming in 1919 who arrives, um, and they begin this, uh, that kicks off officially this, this new wave. Now, why do people come? Why, what is it in the 1920s that are driving people to come? So there, it's really a powerful mixture of three things. Number one was a mixture of idealism. Number two was chaos. And number three, they had very little choice where else to go. Let's talk about these three things for a little bit. Number one, the idealism. The idealism comes from the 1917 Balfour Declaration, which we spoke about at length uh, last session. We spoke about it last week as well. Nobody pointed out to me. We all, we all missed. Last week we met on November 1st, Monday night. Tuesday was November 2nd, was the actual anniversary of the Balfour uh, Declaration. In any case, in the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Now, why is this? It's important to sort of just put ourselves back historically into a certain era, which we take for granted. So we mentioned the Ottoman Empire. We know that they were defeated in World War I. The British kicked them out, and that was the end of the empire. But it's worth just taking a step back and historically noting what it was like to live in that particular era as a Jew, because we take things for granted as, uh, as okay. History as a whole, world history and Jewish history for sure, are filled with moments in which there are major shifts in the world in which we live. And we can look back at them and sort of throw them around, but if you were living in them, it's a big deal. Just as an example, a Jew living in medieval Europe probably could never imagine living in a non-Christian land, a non-Christian world. The Christians were the dominant force for so long. The church was so powerful. It's hard to imagine if you were a Jew living in, in Germany, in France, in, in 1360, like, wh when is that era going to end and how is it ever going to end? It was just, that's the way the world was. As if you were a, a, a Jew living in, in Russia in 18, in 1980, it's hard to believe that communism would one day just disappear. 
Now, some of these errors just disappear, like the wall fell and communism ended, and some of them take a long time. If you were a Jew at any point in history from 640 and on, the land of Palestine was run by Arabs. That was the reality of how things went. The Muslim, they they conquer Palestine in between 636 and 640. For the next 400 years, it's a series of Muslim dynasties that come in, they conquer, they kill, they murder, they take control, and then the next one comes in. And we can name the five or six different groups. It's during that time, of course, that the Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque is built. There's a brief respite from Muslim rule during the Crusades from 1099 when the first Christians come and they run the land of Palestine for a little bit less than 100 years until 1187, about 88 years. And then the Muslims reconquest, reconquer the land of Palestine. The, the Christian Crusaders are never able to take it back. And then the, 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 uh, the Egyptians take it over in 1260. The Ottomans take it over in 1516. And then they're in control except for a brief eight years, all the way until the end of World War I. I'm reminded of when I was in, uh, in graduate school in, in Atlanta, so I had some course on um, sociology, whatever it was, and they were discussing like, there's, that there's no religious majority in America at the time. That was whatever the topic of, of that particular lecture was. And so the professor, to prove their point, went through all the different denominations that were in the U.S. at the time, and they said, well, there are X percentage of Christians, and X percentage of Baptists, and X percentage of Methodists, and X percentage of this, like listed like six or seven different Christian denominations, and each one is 25% and 18 and 16 and 12, and then there are like five Muslim and one Jew, whatever it was, so that the Muslim Jewish was a total of six or seven, and the Christian was 90. And so they said, so you see, there's no majority of any religion here in, in the U.S., and I'm looking around like, did, did I miss the math or something? What is he talking about? Like, like Christian, 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 Christian. That adds up to over 90%. And he's getting up here telling us the whole purpose of the lecture is there's no majority. So, but like no one else, no one else even blinked around the room. So after the class, I went over and I said like, I, I think I'm missing something. Like, this is a Christian country. Like, look at the numbers. He's like, no, this one's Christian. This one's Methodist. This one's Baptist. This one, they're not the same. I was like, oh, to the Jew, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian. Like, I, I don't care that you're this denomination or that denomination. It's a Christian country, which is the same way the Christian world looks at. They're like, we like, no, reform, conservative, orthodox, Hasidic. This one's bells. This one's sodomer. What do they have to do with each other? So the world outside of our world looks at us and they say, like, who cares? You're a Jew. So that's sort of how, like, when you're on the inside, you see, like, how could you define us as one? We're so different. But from the outside, like, I don't care. You're all Jews. So, like, we just, like, there were different, you know, they were Egyptians, they were Ottomans, they were Muslims. I could list six, who cares? From the year 640 until the Ottomans fall in 1917, the land of Palestine is, except for brief, brief, brief little blinks in history, is ruled by the Arabs. A real historian would say, what do you mean? There's 17 different groups of Arabs that... It was an Arab land for a very long time, far longer than any Jew could remember. And in 1917, the British kick him out. Now, if you're a Jew living in this time and you have any sense, again, whether or not there weren't all that many Jews living in Israel, we're beginning to trickle back. This is a momentous occasion of, for the first time in 1300 years, 
that the land is not ruled by Arabs. And instead, it's ruled by a visitor. The British don't own the land. They're in. And they were given a mandate to create a Jewish land. So it's not just that the, the Balfour Declaration created such a stir, which it did as we've discussed at great length, but the Balfour Declaration was then combined with the Ottomans are kicked out. A Jew for 500 years, like when is the Ottoman Emperor going to end? How is it going to end? Who's going to... And then it happens. The British come in, World War I throws the world into chaos, and the Ottomans are gone. And all of a sudden, it's almost like this open land with the British there who are supposedly there to help us set up a country. So there was a tremendous level of idealism, whether or not it was religious, secular, Zionist. The idea that the land was now, so to speak, there for the taking and that this shift has happened played a major, major role in reasons why uh, some came. Number two. Um, Number two, as far as why is everybody uh, coming, we have then chaos. Chaos came from a couple of different places. Number one, the Russian Revolution at the end of World War I. The Russian Civil War was a wave of pogroms. An estimated 100,000 Jews are killed. 500,000 are left homeless. Russia's a mess. World War I decimated it. The pogroms, the revolution. And Russia was, it was probably the largest home of Jews at the time. And it's a total mess. Together with the complete upheaval in all of Europe. As, as I've said many times, quoting Rabbi Berowine, if it wouldn't be for the destruction of World War II, we would still always be talking about the upheaval of World War I as the greatest calamity of uh, the 20th century. And the entire, the entire uh, continent was in uh, disarray, uh, death everywhere, poverty, uh, economic crisis, uh, there are shattered communities, the, the Jewish communities of Europe were totally shattered, infrastructure was, was uh, totally ruined, and it created a nationalistic awakening in many of the European nations in which in World War I and the Treaty of Versailles creates nine new countries. Like we mentioned, Transjordan, uh, Lebanon, there are just countries that were, were created. And that created a problem of minorities who suddenly found themselves in new countries with new identities. And if you were the minority in that country, that wasn't always a great place to be. And Jews were generally considered to be uh, in that minority. So you have, you have the idealism of the Balfour Declaration and new leadership. The Ottomans are, are gone. The Arabs are gone from ruling the land. You have chaos everywhere in Europe. And the U.S., in effect, closed its doors to immigration. The Emergency Quota Act of 1921. After the three years of the war, the U.S. said, wait a minute, we're becoming the place of refuge for all of these immigrants. We don't want all of these Europeans coming to our shores. So in 1921, they passed an Emergency Quota Act that limited immigration to 3% annually of any given nationality as per the 1910 census. So whatever, however many Russians were in the U.S. in 1910, 3% of of that number could come annually. Now, a Jew, whatever you came from, you were that nationality. So a Jew from England was English. didn't care that you were Jewish. You were English or Russian or French. And those borders closed very quickly because everybody was trying to get in. And as soon as you hit the quota, you were done. By 1924, they further limited it to 2%. And they said, we don't want to base ourselves on the 1910 numbers because there were too many immigrants who came from Russia over the last 30 years. They went back to the 1890 census. 2% of those numbers were allowed into the U.S. And therefore, most Jews simply could not get into the U.S. at all. So you have idealism, you have total chaos, 
And then you have, where else are you going to go? And so you got a large number of Jews who came to uh, Palestine. And the relative success of the absorption from the second Aliyah, from 1904 to 1914, um, was encouraging. Like, we were able to, to do it and to make it work. Now, this creates, as we, uh, as we get into the three major tensions that are going to define the decade. The first is defined as the new Jew, and this is probably the most important and defining, continues to define the land of Israel until today, the idea of the new Jew. The new Jew was the idea of the socialist Jews who arrived from various European countries who were swept up, as we've discussed many times in the past and will continue to discuss because you can't get away from it. Uh, they were based on st- setting up not just a new Jewish state, but it was going to be a socialist Jewish state. They were very much influenced by Marxism in, in Russia. The idea of uh, communal living, no oppression, no exploitation, the sanctity of human labor, Jewish labor, it was an open concept of a new Jew. The Jew of European Europe, excuse me, the old Jew of Europe is a dead Jew. That's not the future. The, the caricature of being short and hunched over a book with a long nose, the Jew himself, the socialist Jew said, we're done with that. We are going to be strong and blonde and we're going to be workers of the field. We are going to create and we're certainly not going to be religious. That was the vision of the new Jew that the socialists came to this land uh, with. It was going to be an agricultural society. Golda Meir, for example, arrives in 1921. Just some of the names that came during this particular time. Ben-Gurion already was there from the, uh, the second Aliyah. This movement, the socialist Jews who, who were already being swept up by the socialist movements in, in other countries and brought it to this, this utopian society that we're going to create here in the land of Palestine, uh, found what no, we know as the kibbutz movement, which was the kibbutz was going to be the epitome of the socialist ideal in which we were going to create an entire environment, an entire yeshuv, a little a moshav, a community that's going to be built on a socialist ideas. Uh, one of the, there were many different groups, probably the most famous and largest was Hashomer Sair, uh, the youth guard as it would be loosely uh, translated as, was a, a very socialist left-wing group which was devoted to this idea of communal settlements. There are slogans where, you know, everyone is equal, ownership of property is the root of all evil, that's what's destroying Europe, the idea of becoming wealthy and gathering ownership. Everybody should contribute according to their abilities and take a classic socialist vision. And the kibbutz was the place where it was going to take uh, root. Uh, it's, it was very idealistic. The only valuable labor was working the land. Now, one of their throwing aways of, of uh, traditional Judaism, working the land from the time of Cain and Hevel, the curse that... Uh, from Adam, really, when he gets kicked out of the, of the Garden of Eden, was bezeat apecha tocha lechem. You're going to eat by the sweat of your brow. The earth, so to speak, is cursed. And to become a farmer is in, 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 getting involved in a cursed profession of, by the sweat of your brow. And they, no, 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 it's not a curse. It's the blessing to be able to work the land. Working the land of Israel happens to be a beautiful thing. One, one day I, I yearn to be, a, to be a farmer. My attempts so far have not proved that I have a, any chance of succeeding, but... Maybe the land of Israel will, will be better suited to than my balcony up here in Montreal for growing things. But either way, either way, so they felt that was it. We're going to create a kibbutz. It's going to be agriculturally based. Um, Hashomer Hatzair became really an international scout movement in which they would really uh, scout out and encourage and recruit people to come and move to, uh, to Eretz Yisrael. It became a political party as well. 
between the years 1920-1929, this kibbutz movement brought in 37,000 Jewish farmers. They worked 700,000 dunam of land, about 180,000 acres. They were just buying up, working, setting up uh, farms and kibbutzim. They went from 50, now they were not the first one, the kibbutz existed earlier. They went from 50 throughout the land in 1920, they had over 110 just three years later as they were buying up, settling, bringing in farmers, draining swamps, all of those visions that we have, the pictures of the chalutzim, beginning the, the land, that was, the, they were not religious kibbutzim, they were anti-religious kibbutzim, and they were, that was their religion. The religion was uh, settling land. I met I took a trip to Israel uh, from Atlanta. We took a group and we went up north, literally up north. We were, we were sitting on a kibbutz at the northernmost point of Israel. We were looking at uh, Lebanon, which made most of the people uncomfortable. But the guy who was giving us the tour was this American Jew who moved from Chicago in like the 50s. And uh, he was now, he was an older man at the time that we met him. And he was like, he was like waving. He's like, wave, you're on camera, guys. Everybody wave. They're all watching you right now. So it made all of us nervous, but he was like totally fine with that. And he explained to us, he's a secular guy, that he moved from Chicago, whatever it was, in the 50s, and he wanted to join one of these movements. And he said to us, this is a kibbutz that doesn't have a synagogue. By, we were in a religious group. By, by charter, doesn't have a synagogue in the kibbutz. And he said, I, I moved here. This is my religion. Working this land is my religion. I, I'm going to die on this hill. I'm not going anywhere. It'll be from old age or in war, but this is where, this is the hill I'm going to die on. And it, it was amazing. In, this was a trip in the early, we had 2000s probably still, even maybe 2010 even. There were still Jews who were like, like that was their religion. We were working a, a little kibbutz, and uh, that movement as a whole did not make it. The idealism that's required for kibbutz living, that everybody puts forth what they can and takes back only what they need, and that no one can own land, and everybody's the same, and communal dining rooms and communal nurseries, all of those ideas, these socialist ideas, those are not Jewish ideas, they're socialist ideas, and they were just brought by the socialists to set up utopian Israel, and over time, it didn't work. Did it bring a lot of Jews in? Did they settle the land? Would, would the religious Jews have ever drained the swamps away? That these No way would it never happen. They came, they set up the land, kol kavod. but as a movement, today already, I don't have the exact numbers, but there are very, very few kibbutzim left that are of the real old-fashioned school. There are a number that still exist that have become privatized, commercialized, but as a whole, but that was the movement, that's what they came. One more point before we just get into the last, the last major issue of this thing. In 1923, um, the largest real estate deal of its kind in the history until that point of Palestine was the purchase of the Valley of uh, uh, Jezreel by the Nat- Jewish National Fund. This was the most fertile land, and it became really a symbol. Uh, if you want to read, I, I have a little just um, excerpt. If you want to go to the website of Karen Kayemet, um, uh, KKL or the National, Jewish National Fund, go to their website. They have on like the left-hand side of the webpage, they have by the decade. Like what the Karen Kayamet, what we did during the, our first decade from 1900 to 1910, our second decade, our third decade, and they give you a whole write-up. So in their third decade, this decade from 1920 to 1930, they have a beautiful write-up of like what they were busy with, which was buying land. And they, they literally almost have the minutes of the meetings of this purchase of land. This was, was the largest purchase of land at the time. And it was, uh, it was done by a Jew by the name of Yoshua Hankin, 
who, uh, who went to Haifa to meet with Beirut's Sursuk family, who was the owner of the lands. He had spent 20 years cultivating a relationship, trying to buy this land. And he went, he had no authorization from, from the Jewish National Fund, uh, which was really uh, um, um, based in The Hague at the time. Um, and uh, together with uh, Menachem Musiskin, they, they, they purchased the land. They signed a contract as uh, the, the person in charge was a Jew by the name of, um, let me have it here in a second. Oh, I lost it. Diliem. Uh, was the, the fellow who was in charge. And he was anti-opposed to buying this, like, we don't have the funds, it's not the time. They went ahead and around, behind his back, they went ahead and they bought the land. So you just have to read, like, I've sat in a lot of board meetings over the years. So, you know, board meetings are, are board meetings, and they get involved in discussion. We shouldn't buy this, we shouldn't buy that, we should do this. And you think, like, as you're sitting there, as I'm sitting there, I'm listening to, like, this discussion. Okay, right now, this is important for the, the organization. Like, 10 years from now, is anyone going to read these minutes and care about the decision of buying, you know, this table or that color machit. Like, what are we doing? Like, all this time spent debating this thing. And then every once in a while, you read the minutes of a meeting, and you're like, wow, they changed Jewish history. There was like this debate in which people said, we don't have the money. And others said, we need to do it anyway. How are we going to pay for it? I don't care. Like, they're talking about buying the largest plot of land that was bought by the Jewish people from the time of the destruction of the base of Mikdash. And they went and they said, this is an opportunity that it doesn't matter that we don't have the money. And you know what? The guy in charge is going to say, we don't have the money, so we're signing the contract before he shows up. And, and he wrote, Ushiskin writes in his diary, we signed the contract before he came because we knew he was going to get in the way and we weren't going to let anything get in the way of Jewish history. Uh, he writes... If the choice is between breaking our faith with our, the head of the organization, this Diliem, or breaking our faith with the land of Israel, I choose to break my faith with the head of the organization. Our bond with the land is such that uh, you can call me a bad businessman, but you'll never say that we missed the opportunity to purchase this land. It's just an amazing thing as they buy this. All of this, all of this to say, what cannot be overstated, and we've discussed this in the past, and we'll discuss it again for the rest of this course, this group the secular uh, socialist Jews who come and are doing the work. They're, you cannot deny, and I would never try, they came, they bought, they drained swamps, at, and their blood, tears, sweat, everything was an anti-religious group. They were not just not religious, they were anti-religious. They were invested in creating a new Jew. That was their language. There's a new Jew in town, and it's not the religious Jew. It's disconnected from the religious history. It cannot be overstated the tension that this created for Jews, not just in Israel, but worldwide. There is a religious community in Israel at the time. We've mentioned it many times in, in Svats and in Tiberias and in Jerusalem. There's a religious community. It's not very large, but there's a religious community that's been there for a long time. There are religious Jews who have been maintaining the faith throughout centuries of oppression throughout the world who have been praying three times a day, and bring us back to Jerusalem, bring us the flowering of redemption. And then you, you're watching what's happening, and the land is being settled. Jews are coming home. They're buying, draining, 
building. It's an amazing thing, but they're building a new Jew that's not religious. And that doesn't fit what we've been waiting for, yearning for, praying for. None of it fits. And the tension that that created of how do you relate to this dichotomy of a land being settled and built up by irreligious Jews was very complicated. Do you support it? Do you not support it? Could this possibly be what we've been waiting for? It doesn't fit. It doesn't seem like it could be. That is a tension that existed then and will continue straight through until today where the, the socialist movement has changed. But Israel is still today, what are the numbers, 90% secular? It's, it's, not, it's still a, major, way, a significant majority. Is it 90? It, it's significant. It might be less now as, as things are shifting, but it's, it's significant. And, and so you have this dichotomy. Now already we can look back in hindsight in, in uh, over, over 100 years now, we're talking about the 1920s, 100 years of history, we could look back and say, oh yeah, we see there's a process that's going on and it's changing, it's developing. We can see that. But at the time, it was just one very complicated mix of do you support the concept of a new Jew? And supporting the land meant that. That's very, like, so do you support the land or do you not support the land? Do you support the resettlement? So we can all be very Zionistic today and not have to deal with this question. But you couldn't avoid it back in the 1920s, and we'll see how this will continue to show itself many, many times over. Tension number two is within the secular movement, which is also a tension that's going to continue until today. And that is the, what's known as the revisionist movement. Chaim Weitzman, who's the head of the Labour Party, uh, had basically based the Zionist program on the idea of working with the British in the Balfour Declaration. The British are in control. They're running the land. They've been giving the mandate by the League of Nations, which was the precursor, of course, to the UN. At the time, it was called the League of Nations. And they had the approach of nothing can be done without them. They're in control. The governments of the world placed England, who won the war, was on the winning side at least, and actively kicked out the Ottomans. They're in control. If we're going to get a Jewish state, it's going to be working hand in hand with the British. Not everybody, believe it or not, not all Jews agreed as to how this was going to go. And not all Jews agreed that the way to make it happen is to work together with the British. The leader of the opposition was a Jew by the name of Zev Jabotinsky, who already for a while, already in the early 1900s, had established himself as the leader of, um, uh, of the Zionist movement, except he didn't believe that the way to do it was with the British, because the British very quickly established themselves as anti-Zionist, even though their mandate was to, with the Balfour Declaration, to establish a Jewish state. But as we spoke about last week, once they got there, they had the Arabs to contend with, they had their own interests, there really was no reason for them to be invested in creating a Jewish state. And eventually they started doing things that were actually uh, anti-Zionist. So he believed that there needed to be a revisionist movement and to revise the idea of working with the British. That that was not the approach to take. The things that he wanted to do, he wanted a Jewish state on both sides of the Jordan River, reestablish the Jewish Legion, which he had been involved in, was an army, a unit of Jews fighting to establish the Jewish Colonial Trust, which was going to be the economic activity, a political offensive uh, to replace or or induce the British government to adapt its policy, to the Balfour Declaration, which they had moved away from because it really didn't serve their interests. And he wanted all of Transjordan, not just the side on the other side of the Jordan River. Both sides of the Jordan River should be uh, with large-scale immigration, no limits to agriculture. And this is going to, we're going to talk about it in a future class, there were the three main groups which we've all heard of, the Irgun, the Lechi, Palmach, Haganah, all of these groups that we hear about, 
Why are there so many different groups? Because there were various different approaches as to how does the Jewish people in the land of Palestine relate to the British who are in control. And this is a debate that Jews have had, not beginning in the 1900s. This goes all the way back throughout Jewish history to the Roman periods. How do we deal with foreign nations in our homeland? The Romans were in control for a while. The Greeks were in control for a while. We're about to go through the Antifah Hanukkah, which is all about... Jewish people taking up arms and overthrowing an oppressive government in our homeland. Yeah, we all, we all celebrate that. We dance around, we light Hanukkah candles. Is that not a story of Jews taking up arms, Jews fighting for themselves, Jews actively kicking out foreign governments from our land? Yeah? And there's an approach of democracy, or it, we'll call it, uh, you know, not democracy, but diplomacy, working with the government in control. They're, after all, on our side, the Balfour Declaration. We shouldn't fight with them. We should work with them. So if things are working well, so then the two sides can get together. But what happens when you run into a roadblock and then all of a sudden is, what's the best approach, diplomacy or arms? So guess what? Jews couldn't agree on that. And so you had those who believed diplomacy is the way to go. That was the labor movement that was led by Weizmann, who said, we've invested decades, and he was right, decades of effort in cultivating relationships with the British, which is what got us the Belfort Declaration in the first place. You're going to fight with them? We cultivated this through diplomacy to get the Belfort Declaration. And then you have those who said, very nice, we appreciate what you did. They're not carrying it through. Now what do we do? Now we fight and kick them out. Those two Jews, those two approaches were up against each other and continue to be in many, many different ways. And that's what's going to lead, as we're going to see, Menachem Begin leads or, or wages an entirely different fight against the British throughout the 40s, leading to the state, than the labor movement and the Haganah wanted. The Haganah wanted to be only self-defense. We never go on the offensive. We never attack. We're only here to protect our communities. And Begin felt... We got to get the British out. Jews are dying. It's World War II. How could we not? So we'll learn more about that as we go along. But that already begins in the 1920s with Jabotinsky already unhappy, so to speak, with Weizmann and saying, we can't sit by and allow the British. This is already in the 20s. The British are not going to leave for another 20 years. And it's going to be a, a bloody a 20-year period of trying to figure out how exactly uh, that's going to go. It's a very deep philosophical divide that existed long before and continues to exist in terms of how does a Jew handle himself in the exile. That's one question. What about if you're in the land of Israel with a foreign government is the question that they were, uh, they were dealing with. The third issue is the Arab issue. So we have uh, issue number one, again, was simply... Um, <coughs> Excuse me. Issue number one was, was simply the, within the religious and the, the secular Jew, who's going to define what this, the new Jew is going to be, what it's going to look like. Then we have within the secular movement of what should be the approach of dealing with the British. And then, of course, we have the Jew-Arab issue, which is not yet settled. And when you talk about things in history, which we'll look back and say, like, how is this ever going to end? We're in one of those periods in which you said, how is that going to settle itself? I have no idea. What, what, how is there ever possibly going to be a solution? What do you do with five million Arabs? What kind of possible solution do you have? 
No idea. Good thing. It's the Rabbanu who's in charge and we don't have to figure that out. But I don't know how you're going to figure that out. But that's the issue which was, didn't, wasn't created in the 1920s, but it comes to a head in a, uh, in a new level, I would say, in the 1920s. And that is, of course, through the, uh, the pogrom of, uh, of Hebron. Hajamin uh, al-Husseini, who we already introduced already last week, uh, was the chief mufti of uh, Jerusalem. He had been arrested during the early, the late 1900s, 19-teens, uh, we had mentioned uh, uh, already last week. Uh, but he is not a friend of the Jews, uh, organizes a system of terror, pogroms, kidnappings, murders. It's, you know, they're the issues that we've had to deal with um, all, of these, uh, all of these years. As we've mentioned last week, and we mentioned again, and it has to be mentioned when you discuss this issue, we, you, we cannot sort of like whitewash history as we discuss the Jews returning to the land of Israel. That statement, which as Jews, this is our homeland, it was our homeland 2,000 years ago, we were exiled and we're coming home. We, we, when you learn through this, when we go through history, you, we cannot ignore the fact that there was a Muslim majority that lived in the land of Israel before the Jews started coming back in mass. Which means when the Jews come back and they want Jerusalem, and they want Hebron, and they want Haifa, and they want... There were Arabs living there already, in, to a far greater degree than the Jews lived in the land of Palestine. Now, and sometimes we were buying up new land that was not settled, and that's one issue. But other times we're buying up land like in Jerusalem, which was already settled. That creates major tensions. If you are an Arab living in Jerusalem, you are not happy necessarily about the influx of Jews coming in, buying up land and developing and making it into Jerusalem. We know how Arabs think. We know that in the same way we feel very strongly about our religion and our destiny, the Arabs also feel uh, very strongly about the Jew and the infidel. And this created and continues to create major, major tensions. Um, all of the terror that the Jews were dealing with, of course, led to the founding of the, uh, the Haganah, which was a defense. We, the Jews were defenseless. They didn't have anything, and so they needed to organize into a, uh, into a better system. Uh, skipping a lot of details and just getting to this major event of 1929 is the pogrom in uh, Hebron. It's sometimes known as the Hebron Massacre, the Hebron Pogrom. The reality is, or whatever we want to call it, is a major turning point in both Arab and British-Jewish relationships. Uh, the basic story, I'm, I'm sure, I, I hope many of you have already been to Hebron and you've been on the tour uh, multiple times. If I, I, you know, I've been on it, I can't even count how many times I've been on the tour. Every time you go to Hebron, you, it's like, like the, the, the tour guides, who I've already heard seven, eight times personally, I can't even imagine how many times they've gone through it, you know, that each time they, they tell the stories, they, like it takes your kishkas, like listening to tell the same story, it's in a, the whole the whole Hebron, but it's it, the Hebron is a city is is just a massive part of Jewish history, uh, and there our spiritual uh, our spiritual life. Uh, reading in the parshas now of you know Marasa Machpela and the the burying of uh, Avram and Sarah and Yitzchak and Rivka, Yaakov and Leah. So in 1929, there was uh, rising tensions for already quite a number of years. There was an incident in Yushalayim in which uh, an Arab is killed uh, and word trickles up. Remember, this is way before email. Word, word makes its way from Yushalayim to Hebron that the Jews are slaughtering Arabs, that the Jews are rioting, that the Jews are going to take over all of Jerusalem and the Alaska um, uh, mosque. 
and uh, Husseini uh, riles everybody up further, and there was word that had leaked out that there were things in Hebron, there was a small Jewish community, about 700 Jews, surrounded by 20,000 uh, Arabs in the city of Hebron, and uh, rumors already spread that violence was coming, and the, uh, the, the British... Uh, and again, this is when you go to the museum there, you get all the, the actual details, either told them it was going to be fine, didn't do anything. The bottom line is uh, a, a, a pogrom breaks out. 67 Jews are, are murdered, uh, many of them, over 40 of them from the yeshiva that was there in uh, Hebron. Many are injured. If you go to the museum, I'm sure you've all seen that it's uh, already in an era where there are plenty of gruesome pictures that were taken. The, the number in, in, the, in, the, in the pantheon of Jewish history, 67 Jews... Uh, being killed in a pogrom, it's like, you don't even want to say the words, like, doesn't rate in the, uh, you know, in the, our list of, of pogroms and inquisitions and the Holocaust, 67. But in, in Hebron, in the yeshiva, and the brutality of it was, was shocking. It was shocking. It really was a landmark event um, in, the, in the new yeshiva of, uh, the, not the new yeshiva already, in the, in the, in the 1920s and 29s. Um, there were many who survived by, by, by being taken into Arab families, but the British police were, were roundly blamed by the Jewish community for uh, inaction. Uh, we have statements that the British police, both leading up to it and afterwards, you know, blamed the Jews. And then to uh, protect the Jews, they basically kicked them out of Hebron. All the surviving Jews, you know, there were 700 Jews that lived there. The British said, we can't protect you over here. So in order to make sure that you're safe, because the Arabs are uncontrollable, so they kicked them all out. And that ended in one day. Um, well over, we have documented 700 years of Jews living in Hebron, and that was the end of that until 1967 when some of them came back. And if you want the story of how the Jews came back, go to Hebron, go to the tour. They'll tell you all about the, the crane and the, the, what do they call those things? The, uh, the, where they would live in the caravans, where they were dropping caravans, they were given a certain number of caravans and families would move in. And uh, until today, it's just an amazing, uh, amazing that the Jews, you go there now, the numbers are not 20,000, like 200,000 Palestinians living in Hebron and a small number of, what is it, nine, 90 families are allowed to have, 90 Jewish families. Um, it's, it's really uh, unbelievable. They came back in 67. But that incident changed the dynamic of the Jewish-Arab relationship, which had always been filled with tension, but that there was such an open pogrom that happened in the land of Israel of, the, of children and young yeshiva students. I think there were seven uh, Canadian and American students who were amongst the, those, who were, uh, those who were killed. Um, had a major impact on the, the Jewish-Arab relationship and on the Jewish-British relationship. As we said, the point number two was the tension between how should we relate to the British? Well, when the British basically stood by and allowed it to happen and then to further protect us, kicked out the Jewish community of Hebron, that only added to the side of this is not a partner. We don't have a partner with the British and now how do we get them out so that we could set up the land. But that was still uh, 15, 16 years uh, ahead of itself. We weren't quite almost, uh, not, not quite ready for that. But the, the British, in response to this uh, issue, the, the Passfield White Paper, which was issued just a few months later in 1930, which restated the British policy in regards to Palestine and was decidedly anti-Semitic, meaning officially the policy had been the Balfour Declaration all the way until this point. Whether they had done anything for the 19, from the 11 years from 1917 until 1929, 20, we could debate. 
but it was a still officially the policy of the British that they were given a mandate to set up a Jewish state. In 1930, that's the end of that. They officially issued the White Papers, which didn't officially put an end to the Balfour Declaration, but for all intents and purposes, basically did. It limited immigration, it limited land purchase, it limited Jewish labor because they were taking all these things from the Arabs. They were buying land from the Arabs, they were taking jobs from the Arabs. So they limited everything, and it was a major reversal in official policy from the Balfour Declaration. So all of that was a result of the pogrom of 1929 in Hebron. So all of that to say, as we just sum up briefly, uh, this period, this decade, the decade of the 20s, is known as the third wave, the third and the fourth wave, in which a very significant number of Jews come. The Jews who come during this wave are decidedly socialist, as opposed to some of the earlier waves, and that creates the new Jew, the phenomena of the kibbutz, which again existed before, but it really flourishes during this time because of the chaos in Europe, because of the poverty in Europe, because of the war. They stream in looking to create a new society, and that creates, of course, the major tension that will define much of uh, the, the history of the state of Israel as they begin to do so. We have the issue of within the Jews that come, how to relate to the British who are in control and are clearly not interested in actually creating a Jewish homeland. And we have the development of the Arab Jewish tensions. And these are really, these last two classes are really just setting up the context of uh, the, these, these two decades leading into the founding of the state of Israel. Just some of the background, some of the things that were going on in the time as we'll continue our journey of the various issues and aspects that will lead into uh, to the, the founding of the state in uh, 48, but we have still much to do until, uh, until we get there. All right, wishing you all a wonderful evening.